Welcome back to the Garden Weekly Bible Study. Today we're looking at the second psalm. I've titled this, The Chosen Son Inherits All. The Garden Weekly Bible Study is a product of thegardenweekly.com where we look at Christian articles, videos, and podcasts and talk about why they're important, why they're helpful, and we share them in a weekly newsletter. If you want to know more, you can go to thegardenweekly.com. The Bible study, we've actually been going through the book of Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, there is a quote of Psalm 2-7. And we did look at that from the context of Hebrews, but this whole psalm is very important. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So we're going to take a deeper dive into it to try and understand what's really happening in this psalm. So let's go. Psalm 2 is anonymous, formally, doesn't have a superscript with an author like many of them do, but it is ascribed to David in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. It has four stanzas or movements, uh, sections with different kind of topics as it moves through. The psalm writes of the futility and stupidity of rebelling against God, but not just God, also his Messiah, his Messiah, his anointed one, a king who is also God's son. There are many anointed, someone or something chosen or set apart for an important role. That's what it means to be anointed. Priests, such as Aaron, are anointed. Kings, such as David, are anointed, and perhaps even prophets are anointed. And this psalm looks back on God making a chosen one, an anointed one, his king, and the futility of rebelling against God's plans. So Psalm 2 is probably about David, but it also can't only be about David. And we're going to see that. So, movement number one Verses 1 to 3 here. I'm just going to read them out. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. So in this first movement, we see humans who rebel against Yahweh and his anointed one. They plot against God. This is the same Hebrew word from Psalm 1, verse 2, where the righteous person murmurs about God's law. The word literally means murmur. And that's translated in 1, verse 2, to um, meditate, right? We murmur God's law under our breath continually throughout the day. But here, that same word is seen in a negative way, in a negative light. The people's murmur against God in vain. They're muttering under their breath curses or rage or their anger against God. And that connects these two psalms. In Psalm 1, we have things that the righteous person does and blessings for him. And in Psalm 2 here, we start with things that an unrighteous person does, and we're going to see their end. But it also does end with a blessing. While Psalm 1 begins with a blessing, Psalm 2 is going to end with a blessing. 
So these unrighteous people are murmuring about how to dethrone God. They're plotting how to dethrone God. And from the earliest parts of the Hebrew scriptures, we have been waiting for a human child who will crush the snake, Genesis 3.15, who will speak for God like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15, and who will be a king in the line of David. In other words, we have seen many anointed ones, people who are called by God to fulfill a purpose, like Moses, like David, Solomon, Elijah, Isaiah, so on. But we are awaiting the anointed one, who will be the pinnacle of God's purposes on earth, all wrapped up in one human. Now, the translators of the ESV think that this uh, certainly is about the anointed one. That's why they've capitalized the A here for anointed. I think that they are trying to um, show us that this is talking about Jesus. And I think it is, though I think that uh, maybe they're giving away the game a little bit by capitalizing that. But whatever the case, we are awaiting the anointed. That's the kind of sweep of Hebrew scripture. So let's take a look back into Psalm 2 here to see what it's talking about. Um, If this is the anointed or just an anointed. The word for anointed here, as I mentioned earlier, is misya, or as we English folk would pronounce it, Messiah. So that word Messiah just means anointed one, anointed person, right? So the Hebrews are looking for an ultimate king, a prophet, a snake crusher, all wrapped up in one person. And we're going to find out more about this anointed one as the psalm progresses. No way yet to tell if this is an anointed or the anointed. Like I said, I think that the translation gives away the game a little bit, but Let's uh, let's pretend like it's lowercase. This whole movement here is quoted in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 28. The machinations of the Jewish and Roman leaders to crucify Jesus the Messiah are seen as a fulfillment of these verses. So there's the quote. For connective tissue, like we saw in the last one in... Uh, in our Bible study on Hebrews, the word for here is a connective tissue. It's saying this is going to explain why I just quoted this. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, right? So they're trying to connect anointed with Jesus, the anointed. So the New Testament authors certainly see this as talking about Jesus. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So here they are connecting the Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and people of Israel with why do the nations, and in the uh, Greek translation of this psalm, It's translated as Gentiles. Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples, Gentiles, plot in vain? So they saw Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the Romans, the Jewish leaders, as um, fulfilling the first verse of this passage. The Gentiles, the peoples, plotting and raging against God. But there's a surprising twist. 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, this is outside of the scope. We're looking at Psalm 2, so I'm not going to dig deep into what that means. There are a lot of different interpretations, but whatever the case, the connection between the Gentiles and the people's plotting, Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the plan of God, ultimately, for Jesus the Anointed One, are all born from this movement of the psalm. So this may be confusing, right? How are they seeing Jesus in this passage? How are they putting Jesus? Doesn't it seem like they're forcing Jesus back into this passage? It's just talking about an anointed. And I and I'm with you. I understand. That can be confusing. There's no explicit prophecy here. This is not clearly talking about the a future anointed who will be killed and and so forth. There's not an explicit prophecy here. How is Jesus fulfilling this? We're going to come back to that at the end, because this is how biblical prophecy and fulfillment works most of the time. We're going to come back to that. First, we're going to look at movement number two, which I have titled God Laughs. And I'm going to quote it. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is God's response to rebellion, is laughter. Response number one is he laughs. Response number two, he holds them in derision. Response number three, he will speak. Response number four, He will terrify them in his fury. In response number five, he will set his king on Zion. So the anointed one must also be a king on Jerusalem. Zion equals Jerusalem. This king is the anointed one. So the anointed is also a king. Great. We found out some more information. The Zion here, his holy hill, that's Jerusalem. It's another name for Jerusalem. The holy hill, mountains are places where people meet with God. Um, Think of Mount Sinai, for example. Um, There are many others in the Hebrew scriptures. It's also, Jerusalem is built on a hill And the temple is on that hill. The temple is the meeting place of heaven and earth. It's where God meets with humankind. It's where um, purification for sins can happen. It's where people can be made right with God in the temple. So God has brought his chosen one, his anointed one, into Jerusalem, into where the temple is, into where heaven meets earth, and made him a king. God knows that nothing, that no human rebellion, nothing that humans can do can thwart his plans, just as we saw in Acts chapter 4. Humans try to rebel, and God laughs and says, there's nothing that you can do about it. I have set my king in Jerusalem. Movement number three, God's chosen son inherits all. We could also say his anointed. 
God's anointed chosen son inherits all. This is verses seven to nine. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the perspective shifts. Up until now, we've seen God talking or the perspective of God. Now it has become the perspective of the anointed one. Yahweh tells the anointed one, the Lord Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we looked at this in our study on Hebrews 1, 4 to 6. We looked at this from the perspective of the book of Hebrews, and we concluded that begotten cannot mean birthed or born or even created. But I'm going to rehash that a little bit. So if you just watched the Hebrews video, this is going to be a little bit of repeat information. So in normal usage, the word begotten means birthed, as I said, or to bear a child, usually through reproduction. My wife and I have a daughter. We begot her. We begat her. I believe past tense is begat. Um, So some splinter groups of Christianity will try to say, look, Jesus is the son here. He was begotten. Therefore, Jesus was created. The Jehovah's Witnesses will say that uh, he was created out of nothing by the Father. Other splinter groups of Christianity, like the Mormons, would say that he is the literal progeny of God's sex acts with other gods. So they look to verses like this applied to Jesus as proof, but that is absolutely not what is meant here. Texts without context are a pretext for a proof text. Texts get their meaning from their context. The lines before these write of the son being made king of God's chosen city. All right? I have set my king on Zion. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Number one, how can he be born, if you were going to say born, like of a literal sex act? How, how are you going to do that and have this person say, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That doesn't make any sense. But even if he were created, it still doesn't make sense. Because the lines before this in Movement 2 were writing of the son being made king of God's chosen city, the lines after this speak of God's, uh, speak of the son being made the inheritor of the earth. The ends of the earth will be your possession. The nations will be your heritage. So between the context, the, line, the verse before and the verse after, don't speak of this son, this anointed being created or birthed. He is today, today he is receiving rulership and an inheritance. Inheritance 
rulership. That sets the context for this. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Begotten cannot mean literal creation or reproduction. Begottenness in this context means something like becoming the firstborn son and inheritor. Becoming the inheritor. This king has become an inheritor of God's promises through being adopted into sonship. Now, in the short term, this king is probably David and probably future kings of Israel. Um, A lot of commentaries talk about how this psalm was probably used during the coronation ceremony of Israel's kings. A priest would read movements one and two, and in movement three, the king would start speaking. He would say, I will tell of this decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That doesn't make any sense if begotten can only mean birthed or created. This is a sonship, a inheritance, a kingship language. So this probably started with David or was talking about David to begin with. But we also know that David did not rule the whole earth, the nations, the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them like a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. These things never happened to David. He fought the nations, and the people of Israel were in the promised land, but that's not the ends of the earth. That's not the entire earth. David never saw that. But David was promised that his line of kings would last forever, 2 Samuel 7, which we will look at next week. Though David would not, one of his line would fulfill this prophecy. The writers of the Christian scriptures believe that descendant of David was Jesus, Hebrews 1.5, Acts 13.33. Jesus is the son who has become the inheritor of the ends of the earth through his life, death, and especially his resurrection. Look at Romans 1.4. Here's Acts 13. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, what, what is that? That the nations would be their heritage. Look at Genesis 12, 3 and 4. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by what? By raising Jesus, as it was written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Through the begottenness of Jesus, through his resurrection, Jesus achieved begottenness, which allows the children of God to receive what was promised to the fathers. Romans 1, 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who is descended from David. Son. We just saw that. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son. Kingship, inheritance language, of God, in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Through the resurrection of the dead, Jesus was declared 
to be the son of God. Jesus received the inheritance through his resurrection, through his actions, which we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, which we have already done. And I would encourage you, if you haven't, to go back and start that. Um, It's really fascinating stuff there in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. So we do not yet see Jesus ruling all the nations, but it is now his by right. How do we see that kingdom come to its fullness? Well, when we take the good news of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, Acts 13.47, one day Jesus will return and rule, Revelation 12.5, and we will rule with him, Revelation 2.27. Movement number four, accept the chosen son as king. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The rebels are now offered peace. This is an invitation to serve Yahweh and his chosen son, and those who do will find blessing. We see that this son is greater than any son or king of the earth. The kings, all the other kings of the earth, must pay homage to him, and they are guilty of wrongdoing if they do not. The words about the son's anger or wrath may bring thoughts of a merciless despot whose anger leads him to kill on a whim. That could not be farther from the biblical God or his chosen one. God is a God of abundant mercy. Look at Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. These words are spoken to rebellious and unrighteous rulers who have rejected God and now they are given another chance. These words, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, his wrath is quickly kindled. These words are evoking the seriousness of the warning, not a capricious and unjust wrath. God desires that all who would take refuge in him, that all would take refuge in him by trusting him and his chosen son so that all would be blessed. This is an act of mercy to these rebellious, unwise kings and rulers and peoples of the earth. This is another movement that cannot be seen only as finding fulfillment in David, and I don't think that any mere human could fulfill this. Switch colors here. I don't think that any mere human could fulfill that. This son is described as the place of refuge and the one who executes God's wrath on the unrighteous and rebellious. Earthly kings may fulfill that in part, but God is spoken of as the one that we should find refuge in him. And not just God. The son is the one who is spoken of that we should find refuge in him. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. Who? The Son. Pay homage to the Son. Kiss him. Meaning to show fealty and allegiance to him. 
true fulfillment of this movement requires a chosen king and son who is also truly God. And that is what we find in Jesus. And as a final note, I want to talk about how this is prophecy. Prophecy, we sometimes think of it as a simple formula. Someone predicts what will happen in the future, and that prediction is fulfilled. But that's rarely how the New Testament writers see the Old Testament, and Psalm 2 defies that simple formula. We don't know the circumstances of the writing of this poem. Perhaps it was a time of intense revolt against God and the nation of Israel. Perhaps David looked back on his coronation to remember that he was chosen by God and remember how foolish it is to oppose God. But at the same time, this psalm cannot completely fit David, nor any other Israelite king. The author must be looking forward to a future chosen king who will have the nation's rage and plot, but will rule the whole earth, not just Israel, on behalf of God. That is Jesus, born of a virgin from the line of David, crucified for our sins despite being innocent, and the inheritor of all creation. As we pray this psalm, it poses a question to us. Are we going to kiss the sun? Are we willing to submit to God? This poem tells us that we would be wise to do so, and we will find blessing if we do. But submission is a hard word. It doesn't come naturally, and it doesn't fit us easily. But this psalm also tells us that the end is certain. The Son will inherit and rule all the earth. To deny that just leads to God's laughter. Submission earned Jesus the Messiah an inheritance of rulership of all the earth. Submission to Jesus makes us co-heirs with him of the renewed heavens and earth. Romans 8.17 And that's a pretty good deal. So what does Psalm 2 teach us? I tried to boil it down to three points here. Number one, rebellion is futile. God's plans will be fulfilled. Number two, God's chosen son, king, has and will inherit the whole earth. He has already earned it. Jesus has. And we will see the fulfillment of it. Number three, submission has incredible benefits and refusal has terrible consequences. Thank you for looking through Psalm 2 with me. Garden Weekly is a weekly newsletter and ministry helping you find Christian videos, podcasts, and articles that will deepen your understanding of Scripture, God, and the world around us. If you'd like to subscribe to that newsletter, you can go to thegardenweekly.com. The link is in the description. Thank you for being here with me.